You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, I'll just read it aloud for you. Therefore, that's all right. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So as we close out this pericope this morning, this little section, there's a kind of a a one thought here from Peter in 13 through 21, and then 22 through the end of the chapter is kind of like a transition point, which we'll handle in the next couple of weeks. But as we end this pericope, I think it'll be helpful again to remember what Peter has been emphasizing so far in this letter. We've only got a few more weeks in here, but before we get into some other things the church has to get done. But for a general walkthrough, we remember that in verses 3 through 12, Peter is just caught up in the enjoyment of the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. This great treasure that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded or kept for it until the day that it is revealed, the last day of Jesus Christ. And Peter is just caught up in joy. We rejoice in this even in the midst of the sorrows and the trials that we might suffer in this life, treasuring Christ, treasuring what we have in him in every trial. And that's where Peter is caught up in this joy and in the hope and the peace that comes through knowing Jesus. So after that, we go into verse 13, that word there, therefore. Because of this joy that there is in Jesus, there's application. There's, there's something that God then does in our lives as we treasure Christ. He says a therefore. Because of the great treasure of Christ given to us through faith, these are the resulting realities in the life of a Christian. If I could summarize, it'd be something like this. Because of the salvation of Christ, the Christian ought to have hope, be holy, and trust him. 
Because of the work of Christ, the salvation in Christ, the Christian ought to have hope, be holy, and trust him. So this morning, the, the have hope, be holy is kind of all that's gone on from 13. This morning, we're in the trust him section. And I want you to look with me just at the God-centeredness of this passage. The God-centeredness of this passage. I want you to see this because it's, it's funny as you study the Bible with people over time. It's not funny. It's interesting. As you study the Bible with people over time and you, you start pointing out the God-centeredness of passages, all of a sudden you're jumping around to different books of the Bible and they're saying things like, do you see how God-centered this passage is? And then you go to a different one and they say, do you see how God-centered this passage is? It's like, yeah, it's because he's the center of it all. There, there's a reason why you keep seeing the God-centeredness of this passage. He is the center of this, of this book. But look here at all of the action that God is making here. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, but he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. God then raised him from the dead and gave him glory. God foreknew, he displayed or manifested, he raised and he glorified all of this activity by God. God is the one who foreknew Jesus. God is the one who manifested or displays Jesus. He's the one who raises Jesus from the dead. He's the one who glorifies Jesus. We see in the ascension and is seating at his right hand. This foreknowledge that is spoken of here. This isn't the first time Peter mentions foreknowledge. If you look back in your Bible here to the first, the second verse there, these exiles... Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, uh, Asia, Bithynia. Um, they're all there according to the foreknowledge of God. Right there in your Bible, we've got this word foreknowledge. And there in that, in that instance, um, the, the Christians are to be comforted by the thought that their lives and their faith in Christ are not accidents, but that God actually foreknew they would be in these regions. They would hear the gospel message. They would be saved. They'd be elect exiles, members of God's kingdom, exiled in a, in a foreign place. In a, they, but they are members, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. He foreknew them. They're not Christians by accident. But this usage in this passage is slightly different. The foreknowledge is not that God knew Jesus would happen, but that God knew Jesus in eternity past. He was foreknown. Before all things happened, Jesus was known. Why? Jesus was there with the Father. How? Because Jesus is God himself, right? We confess the Trinity, that God is one being and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is foreknown. But Peter's point even further just look at verse 19. What's he describing there of Jesus? He says that you were ransomed, verse 18, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It seems as though the foreknowing that God has of Jesus is not just that he's going to be born, the incarnation, but that he actually is going to be a sacrificial lamb for his people. Before the foundation of the world, God knew 
humanity was going to need a redeemer. And Jesus, the lamb without spot or blemish, was foreknown. God knew what he was doing. We love predictions. We love accurate predictions. But, you know, it's also, we just love to predict things. Like, you know, um, we've got, we, we, polling is always out there trying to predict who's, predict who's going to win the next election, you know, and they get all scientific about it. And then lately they're just as wrong as they are, right? Like even though they're trying to do scientific polling, that doesn't work very well. The weatherman loves to do predictions and that's a common conversation. And I go to work, what's the weather going to be today? We love our predictions. They're not always that accurate. Joel, I was just, uh, I think it was just yesterday, was watching predictions of Super Bowl winners off of a marble run that people would give like each team a certain marble and they'd drop it into one of those marble mazes things and it was predicting who was going to win. That's not accurate, by the way, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But it was like he was like really into it, like convinced. Oh, this is like predicting things. We love predictions. And, we, you know, we were talking about the homecoming game. And Mr. Smith used to always, in math class, you'd pick the winning, like the total winning score. And whoever won, like, got a prize or something like that. But do you ever guess it right? Like, I never did. But I can imagine, I can pretend, like, what if you guessed the score and you were spot on? At that moment, you're like, isn't that kind of unnerving? Like, do I know something I don't realize? Like, and then the pressure's on the next time to make this prediction to be a good guesser, and then you, you fail. But... Why do we want to believe in this predictive power so much? Why do we want to try to, to guess well? Why do we want to have these predictive powers? Why do, we want, why do we want and value so much for someone to know what's going on? Because the future is so unpredictable for us. We do not know how this day is going to end. We do not know how this week is going to end. We don't know how this year is going to end, how next year is going to go. We have all sorts of variables we don't know about. And the idea of someone knowing what's going on is a very comforting, very comforting thought. So what if, what if, just imagine with me, what if there wasn't someone who was just guessing at what was going to happen? What if there was someone who wasn't just good at making such bland predictions that you could kind of say they came to fulfillment, even if it doesn't really, not very accurate? What if there was someone who wasn't a good guesser, wasn't just really good at making vague predictions? What if there was someone who actually knew and then brought their will to pass? That is a great comfort. And God... Peter is saying here, he foreknew not only Jesus himself, he knew of his sacrifice. He knew that he was going to be the, the lamb without spot or blemish that we needed. What if God is not just really good at making guesses and predictions, but what if he knows what is, will happen because he is the one actively working to bring about his perfect holy will. And this is what he has done. He foreknew him. He displayed him. He manifests him. The incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, right, is Jesus coming in the flesh. And his manifestation, his display is not just in the baby born in the manger, but in his whole life. 
He lives perfect obedience. The life that God and that, that requires of all of us, the life that Peter calls us to, to be holy as God is holy and we fail at, Jesus fulfills. He lives the righteous life none of us have. It continues then even through his capture, through his torture and death upon a Roman cross. God's active work continues then when he raises Jesus from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Who is the active party in all of this? God is working, 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 foreknowing, displaying, raising, and glorifying. What then is left for us? Simply Believe, have faith, hope. God doing all of this work, what's left for us? Believe, have faith, hope in him. Is that good news? Like to think about, is this good news? Because it depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. For some, for the unbeliever, this is absolutely offensive absolutely offensive because it is saying there is nothing you can do to please God. He does all the work. He's the one who foreknows. He's the one who raises Jesus from the dead. He's the one who manifests the life of Jesus. He's the one that glorifies him. He does all this work. What's left for you? You can't do anything. The call for you is to believe, is to have faith, is to trust, is to put your hope in him. For the unbeliever, this carries the stench of death. They hear this and they think, I don't like that. I don't like, I want a list. I want to be affirmed in who I am. Give me the list so that I can go to God and I can say, look at me, God, aren't I deserving? Aren't I good? That's what they want, the pat on the back. They want the self-congratulation. It reeks of unfairness. It seems belittling. You can't do it. This good news tells them they are sinners who cannot redeem themselves. It tells them that they have sin in their life and all they want to hear are compliments. And the gospel is, not, is complimentary, but it isn't to the sinner. It's complimentary to the God who saves. And so for many, this is not good news. For some, the very idea that there is Anything that they love and treasure that could be bad for them. It's anathema. It's to be damned. It's cursed. Who is anyone outside of themselves or ourselves, the unbeliever might say, to tell us what is right or wrong? But for those who are being saved, it is the fragrance of life. To some, it is the stench of death. To those who are being saved, it is the fragrance of life. To hear that, yes, we are sinners without the ability to clean up our act is humbling. It lays us low. To know that some of the most strongly held, held cares and impulses of our life are sinful is hard to hear. To be told that you must turn from your earthly passions, what Peter calls here the inherited passions from your forefathers, to be told that you must turn from them can be devastating. What's the fragrance of life then? To hear that this God who demands righteousness from his people, holiness, for your sake, for our sake, he went to work to save you. Not saving yourself. He went to work to save you. 
That is good news. Give me that good news every day. We're not here to prop ourselves up and say, here's how you look impressive to God. We say, there is nothing. We are sinful. This call to be holy, we have failed. And the good news is, though you cannot work, God has worked for you. And what is left is to believe, hope in him, trust in him. Think of these two ideas. Jesus is this one glorified. He is the one who has obeyed the Father, both in his active and his passive obedience. As our catechism reminds us, one of our catechism, uh, God has made us. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. That didn't make the rest of you feel uncomfortable. Don't know, that, don't know that answer. But why God made you in all things is for his own glory. God does this for his own glory. In fact, in the mission statement, we're starting to read more and more. We say we exist to glorify God. Okay? We exist to glorify God. And yet, tied up in all of that glorify God, glorify God, glorify God, is that God for our sake. It's right there in the text. Verse 20. For the sake of you. For the sake of you. Yes, glorified. And in that glorifying, for the sake of you, he rescues and has acted for his people. Think of it like this. The fireman who takes heroic action to save helpless victims. Passed out or whatever in a fire somewhere. And the fireman puts on his gear and he charges into the burning building. Carries out helpless people. Passed out. They, they run out and this, this fireman, all the danger is put upon them. All the effort is put in by them. And, and when they march out of the burning building with those that they've rescued, who gets the glory? The fireman. The, the person that was rescued didn't do anything but get themselves in a big heap of trouble. <laughs> that's, all, that's what they contributed to this rescue <laughs> is getting themselves in a bad spot. But the fireman, he gets all the glory. Now, as that victim of the fire sits there, if you were to ask them, I bet they aren't disappointed that the fireman gets all the glory. They probably join in on glorifying the one that rescued them. And their joy is that in that fireman's glory, they're caught up and they're rescued. And so it perpetuates itself that the glory is to the rescuer and the joy is in the rescued one glorifying the rescuer. God is the one who gets the glory. We are the one that for our sake get the joy that he has done the rescuing. I want you to, I want you to see this in this passage. The, the reality is, when he's talking about he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, these people don't think that means that Jesus showed up in these towns and manifested himself to them. It wasn't that they saw Jesus with their physical eyes. We've got a pretty good record that Jesus stayed within a pretty small area of the world in Jerusalem, Galilee, in that area his whole life. He did not travel to Turkey to see these people. They did not see him. What Peter is talking about is that Jesus' life was put on display. He was manifested for them. In the same way, when Peter says he was manifested for them, it wasn't that he showed up to their earthly eyesight. But what Peter is saying, that all the same, Jesus' manifesting was for them in that he was the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of his people. Therefore, 
Jesus can be for your sake in the very same way that he was to the churches that Peter writes to. For your sake. Can I per I'm trying to... Pers it. Peter personalizes it. For your sake. The church collective, certainly. But I think you can roll that down to each one of you. Is this said about you? If you call upon him as father, it is for your sakes that Christ has done this. Jesus can be for your sake in the very same way that he was for theirs. How? By faith. By believing in him. By treasuring him. By hoping in him. By turning from sin and seeking to live a life devoted to Jesus alone. And I, as much as I'm imperfectly able to, I plead with you today. Trust Jesus who for your sake was foreknown, was displayed, was raised and glorified. So that through his precious blood... As you turn from your sin, as you turn from the things that draw you away from Jesus and turn towards him, you are forgiven of your sin, made righteous in his sight, and given the joy of one who has been rescued. Not one who has rescued themselves, but one who has laid their lives in the hands of the one who truly can rescue. For those who are looking to God through Jesus alone, what are we to do? Back where we started, the end of this pericope. What's Peter calling us to? This whole summary of this section, Peter calls the Christian to three things. He calls the Christian to hope in Jesus. He calls the Christian to hope in Jesus. There is a forward-looking, confident expectation that Jesus will not abandon his bride. That's just the church. That's us. That's the gathered, that's the people of God. He'll not abandon his bride. He will take care of his body, the church. So we are to live knowing that ultimately for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. Have hope and nothing can take that away. I love as we preach through this passage, I keep going back to not that the, not that the, the uh, inheritance is being guarded for us, but that we are being guarded for it. Man, that's good news to me. That not only is God keeping my treasure safe, but that he's actually keeping me until I arrive at the destination of union with him, full union with him in the realized state at the last days. Jesus has secured your inheritance with his very own blood and he will not fail to bring about the ultimate good for his people. The Christian is called to have hope. The Christian is called to live Holy, we see that in this passage as well here in verse 13. We are called to be holy because this rescue, this grace, this marvelous, matchless, infinite grace so freely given to us by no merit of our own, it's a dangerous gift. It's a dangerous gift because when we see it, we know my life is no longer mine. I've been bought with a price. I, I'm no longer my own. Jesus has redeemed me. Now everything I have is his. Everything I am is his. Every decision I make is his. I am not my own. We have been bought with a price. Our existence is not for ourselves, but for the one who loved us and gave his life for us. As 1 John 4 says, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and given his son to be a blood atoning sacrifice, a wrath appeasing sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. Therefore, with sober minds ready for action, 
We live fearfully before the face of God, seeking to bring glory and honor to the one who rescued us. We are to have hope. We are to live holy and we are to trust him. The hope aspect, I, I think of it as it's, it's the forward looking. God is going to bring it about and we can trust. And so we have hope. Trust is that not only do we look forward, knowing that he will bring our good to pass. Not only do we seek his will for our lives and trying to be holy, we trust him in whatever he has brought our way. No matter the suffering, no matter the betrayal, no matter the cataclysmic change we may be going through right now at this very moment in our lives, even in our church maybe, no matter the difficulty that God may deem necessary to send our way, God has not for one second lost control of achieving his purposes. The Christian can trust him. We can have hope. He'll bring us to the, our pointed good ends. We can seek to live holy because our lives are not ours, they are his, and we can trust him. God's goodness toward you, forgiving you of your sin and adopting you into his family, you can trust him with every detail of your life. As Peter said in his opening, he who rescued you will guard you until that great day when we will see him face to face and rejoice. And until then, we have hope. We seek to live holy and we trust him. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray for the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see this great truth. God, I want this to hit us like it's supposed to hit us this morning. Father, the great foundation that is underneath all of this. Look at what our God has done. Not only has he made the world, not only have you created all that is, not only are you the God who's the creator of everything and everyone and everywhere, you are the God who when your image bearers rebelled, when we ran from you, you are the God who worked your plan to redeem your people, not by giving them a checklist of how to get better, <laughs> but you are the God who foreknew and then displayed through the life of Jesus glorified him in his work on the cross, resurrection from the grave, and ascension to your right hand. And Father, you went to work for us so that every one of us hearing this this morning, free grace offered that as we turn from our sin, trust in Christ and his work on the cross, we are made white as snow, righteous in your sight, truly holy before you, not through ourselves, as our text says, but through him, through Jesus Christ. We are now believers reconciled to you. God, give us eyes to see this. Hearts overcome with the weighty joy of this reality. That we would hope in you. That we would seek God to live holy lives honoring you. And that God, whatever comes our way, we would trust you. Our lives are yours, God. And there's no better place to be than in the hands of Christ our King. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.